0: that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking.
1: a lot of attention to the adventurers who go it alone, who sled to the poles and assisted, who free solo mountains without safety, but this is not the way space engineers see it. For them, surviving the extreme is about environments, it's about systems, it's about entanglements. It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Valerie Olson talks about the efforts to live and work in space. While outer space is often described as a frontier, Olson shows how the space community, astronauts, scientists, and engineers, have come to see it as a cosmic ecosystem. Olson is an associate professor of anthropology at the University of California, Irvine. She's also the author of Into the Extreme, U.S. Environmental Systems and Politics Beyond Earth. Valerie Olson, thank you so much for talking with me.
2: Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here.
1: So as an anthropologist, you did fieldwork for seven years at four different NASA stations, as well as a series of medical centers. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the kind of work that you did.
2: Sure. So for those in your audience who aren't familiar with anthropological fieldwork, we We go out and do fieldwork among our subjects, among people living their everyday lives, doing what they do. The idea is to do what we call participant observation. So we're not just observing what people do. We're actually participating in their everyday work. So I was fortunate to be able to do this at NASA. It was a very unusual situation based on my invitation to work at NASA as an intern. So that was my way of getting in the door was to, and this is, this is common for other anthropologists working in particular settings too, where they sort of broker skills that they might have. In my case, um, I had some experiencing, experience managing research projects, mm-hmm. and I traded that experience for some access into the offices and labs and, and field sites and testing sites and experimental outdoor spaces like an underwater habitat that astronauts train in.
1: So are you actually helping the astronauts with various projects while you're doing field work?
2: Yes, I was actually helping a behavioral health research group conduct research on the experiences astronauts were having in isolated, remote, confined, circumstances in preparation it was training work for their preparation for going up to the space station so they have these space-like stations on earth space-like places anywhere from the hospital bed where they're basically in this bed rest position to mimic microgravity or uh, an underwater submersible habitat where they live and interact and work as if they're in outer space in order to train for the environmental conditions that they're going to be enduring in space.
1: NASA has a uh, NEMO station, right, off of uh, Key, is it Key West?
2: Yeah, Key Largo, actually. That Aquarius is an underwater habitat that was positioned there some decades ago. It's been positioned in other places around the world, and it's now um, a U.S.-based Underwater lab, it has a lot of purposes. Biologists, ecologists, uh, the military use it to do underwater training exercises of various kinds to collect information on coral reefs or to do work preparing for upgrading different kinds of military hardware being used in in underwater activity. But NASA rents it periodically to conduct these analog analog training programs called Nemo named of course mm. after the literary character but also sort of ironically after the little Pixar character as well <laughs> so
1: and you and you spent time uh in Nemo
2: yeah i was working as an intern there as a research assistant and that was part of my participant observation work so i was very um privileged and lucky to be able to work in an everyday spaceflight setting even though it wasn't in outer space. And this is a kind of ironic thing. Usually anthropologists are going to the places that they end up writing about. But yeah. the interesting thing is, of course, I never went to outer space, but I spent time in all the places and spaces on Earth with all the hundreds of people working in, in various domains to make spaceflight possible. And NEMO was one of them. The NEMO program was one of them.
1: You know, uh, I... I sometimes, I was actually talking to Pete uh, Capilotti uh, a couple of weeks ago about these kind of reenactment expeditions, Contiki, for example, Mm -hmm. uh, where somebody's trying to show that some ancient expedition is possible. And I'm kind of, what's the word, skeptical of Mm -hmm. some of these things. But I, I remember taking a, essentially an experiential cruise on one of the large ships about seven or eight years ago. And it, it really did affect the way I thought about people on 19th century expeditions, just because it was so mm-hmm. hard to get used to aspects of it. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if what what NEMA was like, did you, I mean, it's such mm-hmm. a different environment.
2: Well, yeah. So I worked topside, meaning I worked back at the control center where the NEMO missions are managed. And I I got certified as a diver so I could dive down and visit the crew in the habitat. But what was uniquely interesting and convincing for all of us involved in this is, even though the habitat is bolted to the seafloor 63 feet down and some miles offshore, and you can get there on a boat Unlike going to outer space, of course, anyone can get there and dive down. What was interesting about it was that when the aquanauts, as they're called, they are analogical astronauts, they're aquanauts, when they go down to live in the habitat, which is pressurized and, of course, supplied with air, and they're being resupplied by divers bringing them food and other things to live by, it's very much like living on the space station. What's interesting is that their bodies acclimate to 2.5 atmospheres of pressure Hmm. so their bodies are actually acclimated to the atmospheric pressure that they're living at so that in effect even though they're only a couple of hours offshore you can get to them in a couple of hours or maybe an hour and a half they cannot come to the surface yeah they have to actually go through a depressurization protocol at the end of their stay the nemo mission that i was on was the was the mission with the longest that was the longest to date, they actually have to go through this depressurization protocol, which actually, interestingly enough, is analogous to how much time it takes to leave the space station and come back to Earth. So in effect, effect, they are 17 hours away. They are Uh, far away, but near. So our interactions with them and their experience was environmentally analogous. So unlike other space analogs on Earth, say in a desert living in a desert habitat or uh being in a bed rest study in a hospital this one it nemo stands for nasa extreme environment mission operations it was an extreme environment that was that was analogous to being in outer space socially and environmentally we had to observe protocols not to contaminate their their stay by bringing in any cold and flu microbes. We had to be careful not to do that. I mean, it was a very, it was as if they were very far away and they felt it as well. They had to go through that experience of being in a confined space, knowing that they couldn't just swim out to the surface, otherwise they would die. Yeah, They had to depressurize. So it really did give them that sense and give us as support staff that sense of them being far away. So it was a very embodied analog.
1: One of the big projects that NASA was taking on as you were doing your field work was the Constellation Program, which probably um, a lot of people, unless they're kind of space junkies, don't really understand the scope of. I'm wondering if you could talk about that.
2: Yes, it, it was a program that was, in the words of Administrator Mike Griffin, who was the NASA administrator at the time, it was supposed to be Apollo on steroids. The idea was to replicate the Apollo program to go to the Moon, Mars, and beyond. That was the slogan of the Constellation program. And it never received the funding necessary to do that. The idea was they were going to develop a rocket system, a transportation system, a crew capsule, and all of the other technologies, communication technologies, and everything else in order to support a trip back to the Moon onto Mars and beyond. Mm -hmm. So it was a huge effort and everyone at NASA that I encountered was absolutely, was working as hard as they could and as fast as they could to try to make it happen with very little funding. But the passion and the dedication under the rubric of exploration was really remarkable to see and the massive amounts of coordination among very, very disparate practices in order to create this exploration vision as they called it was amazing to watch physicians psychologists food technicians uh, propulsion engineers computer technicians IT people working together to try to coordinate and recreate this the complex system that allowed Apollo to happen was really a remarkable thing
1: one of the things that really I found so striking about reading your book was that um, you know so much of exploration as you know from your studies of it have to do especially let's say in the 19th century have to do with this idea of um, the the solitary rugged individual, usually a guy mm-hmm. uh, usually white mm-hmm. who uh, is talking in this language of going it alone and, you know, and the narratives kind of erase all of the other, uh, let's say, the people and the structures that help that person <laughs> plant the flag or right. do whatever. And, right. and you and you, you know, uh, are embedded with these these different groups, as you were just saying, coordinating this massive project. You have this quote from a systems engineer. I'm just going to read it. Mm-hmm. It says, um, "I describe myself as a systems engineer." The one thing that makes up such a big part of our thought process at NASA is, and how we define our pro- how our projects evolve, is environment, environment, environment. As they say, you're in a bubble. Everything interacts with everything. To me, that sounds like so kind of anti-exploration <laughs> in, that, uh, in that 19th century idea. It's like, you know, everything is connected to everything. So I was wondering if you could talk about you know, this difference between, let's say, the rhetoric of uh, NASA, the pioneering mission, and what these engineers are actually doing?
2: That's such a great question. And it actually ended up, that question that you're posing of me ended up being the question I was asking throughout my project because I went into this project looking for, looking to understand the ways that astronautics, that space flight was was reinventing or sort of altering the understanding of sort of the social production of nature and technology as as interconnected things. So in other words, I was was really spending a lot of time trying to understand how people were designing new technologies to understand nature, the natural world. And of course, that's off world as well, um, in a more complete way and to extend the consciousness national consciousness of what counts as nature outward but that quote from the engineer that you read was a very very pivotal moment for me in which i began to realize as as anthropologists do when we look at our data and begin to sort of recalibrate our questions But I had been going in with this attitude about the fact that technology and nature were going to be concepts that I encountered all over the place at NASA. Mm -hmm. And in fact, technology was sort of a word, but I never, ever heard the word nature uttered by anyone. The word that everyone used to describe the spaces both near and far and within our bodies and out to the edges of the universe was environment their concept of space, wasn't really space, there wasn't really an outer space, outer space was to all the people working to put human beings in it, another kind of environment that required new kinds of technologies and ways of thinking and acting to support the human body, which had evolved in a particular set of environmental conditions to, to, to basically survive something completely outside of its environmental conditional evolution and so environment was this for it was this term obviously meaning surroundings the way that people in astronautics think about spaces and nature and everything else is to classify it all as an environment and it was a really eye-opening moment because in that kind of language the way that they understand their work is that their work is to develop environmental scientific medical and technical processes and and things that allow them to move the human body through different environmental domains and to survive them whether it's on another planet whether it's in between planets in outer space around low earth orbit so what i began to listen to was that and began to ask was exactly that question you asked me i asked one of my subjects the wonderful human research program manager john charles i asked him a question very much like the one you posed to me astronauts are individuals there's a lot of valorization of the individual i kind of gave him the same description you did i said do you agree with this do you do you agree that spaceflight is the story of the rugged individual conquering nature and and he looked at me and he said, no, actually, not at all. It's actually the most profoundly social huh. and interconnected and interdependent practice that I know of. No one, he said, no one gets to the moon by themselves.
1: You know, I wonder if, um, you know, back in the in the 60s, I think probably at the beginning of the Mercury mission, there was a lot of talk about astronauts as being part of this system this integrated system Mm -hmm. that somehow to um to explore the heavens we would need to tweak the human Mm -hmm. um and make uh, in fact i have this great quote from one of my mercury books i just wrote it down this uh, this is from uh, colonel bernard flaherty who was who was working on the medical stuff in mercury and he said man is an integral part of the total machine and i was thinking <laughs> like wow that is so not the way nasa talks about <laughs> astronauts today um and you talk about uh The cyborg as this kind of early vision of uh, how do you you, um, put the astronaut within the system? Could you you talk about that?
2: Yeah, you know, when people think of cyborgs, we think of Terminator. We think of these half-robot, half-human organism beings that are sort of, you know, half made out of metal, and they've got bionic eyes, and they've got, you know, a human arm on one side and a robot arm on the other. And so the cyborg has come to symbolize the merger of the human body and technology. But the original cyborg, the original NASA cyborg it was a study. And it was, and it, then the study itself, the picture that you see, if you go look at, drag, dig up that study and look at the picture, it's going to disappoint you because the original cyborg is a, is a, is a poor little white lab mouse trailing a, hypodermic looking instrument that's been uh, attached to it and what that cyborg was was an organism being adapted to survive in an outer space environment so the idea was that the cybernetic organism that's what the cyborg stands for stands for would be an augmented organism with whatever it took whether it was drugs or or augmented technologies aimed at not just at becoming a hybrid of a machine and a human, but something that could survive a different environment. Uh-huh. So it was driven by this, by this very important dual concept that I explore through the whole book, which is the relationship between the system concept and the environment concept. Human spaceflight is probably the most extreme and intensive version of systems engineering, systems thinking, and environmental condition planning and and this creation of this idea of a system, which the cyborg was an organismic system that would be adapted to a different environment. So the system environment dyad and thinking of the human as a system and the machine as a system and systems of systems, the system is the concept that everything is reduced to from a handheld device that an astronaut might have to her body itself to the to the, to the spacecraft itself, everything is a system. And that is anthropologists are concerned with language. I was concerned with the language of systems thinking and the conceptual frameworks of systems thinking, which allowed people from incredibly different disciplines from biological disciplines and medicine, the study of organisms to talk with people whose concerns were propulsion systems and mechanical systems. So NASA is is kind of an example of an elite institution that's managed to take the systems thinking and systems concept to its most extreme yeah. form.
1: I, I, one of the uh, interesting things on that point of uh, this kind of relationship or dyad between the environment uh, and the system is, uh, or I should say, the extreme environment mm-hmm. and the system is uh, the International Space Station, mm-hmm. which plays a big role in your book. Mm-hmm. I, I think because I'm interested in this kind of extreme environment question uh, down here on Earth, mm-hmm. that uh, in places like Antarctica or the polar regions, I, I've got this question in my head, which is like, you know, at one level, the uh, International Space Station is it's a domestic space. It's it's a home. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a home away from home for the astronauts who live there. Sometimes for up to a year. Yes. And at the same time, it is an extreme environment. Yes. Um, it just seems like such an interesting paradox. I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that.
2: Yeah, you know, um, the the space station is an interesting object. It's a very unique object. It is a home. It is a national laboratory. It is a collab in the in that contemporary sense, in that all of its bits and pieces are cobbled together by con- contributions from all of its member nations, its contributing nations. And, but within the station itself, this extreme environment of recy- of very very um, intensively recycled air and water and this sort of interdependent dimension it has with resupply from Earth. But then this, this space of microgravity, where astronaut bodies are continually exposed to cosmic rays coming in, blasting through the, the, the capsule itself and through their bodies this bizarre microgravity situation in which their fluids in their bodies are pressing up, you know, moving upward, there's nothing to hold them down, their bones begin to lose density, they experience all kinds of of sickness and ill effects, There's psychological effects, it is an extreme environment, pushing their bodies to the limit. And so it's on the one hand, the most complex vehicle ever made in some ways it's also this this space in which people can experience a completely unearthly place so it's very earthly in some ways and very unearthly
1: yeah and i would imagine that uh, iss is also itself uh, an analog for uh, longer duration spaceflight or Human spaceflight to Mars and and to other places, and I know, mm-hmm. I know you don't want to wade into the you know is human spaceflight uh, what we should be doing question, uh, or I don't know yeah. if you want to wade into no. that or not. Do you want to wade? Well, into if we that? if we
2: end up there, <laughs> I'm happy to address it.
1: <laughs> um, but but my uh, I guess my question is. When I think about all the things you just said, that this environment, even the domestic environment, the one that's in Earth orbit and protected by the Van Allen belt, uh, is still subject to pretty high doses of radiation. And Mm -hmm. astronauts are losing bone density. They have to carry their atmosphere with them. You know, they have to be, uh, they have to regulate temperature.
2: Right.
1: Uh, All of these things that you were talking about. It makes me wonder: Is systems thinking? I guess. I guess the question is this: Have we integrated the humans into a system that they can't fit? Mm-hmm. Uh, when we think about that environment, that uh, outer space environment, you know, carried beyond low Earth orbit to Mars and other places.
2: Yeah, that's you know, even among my interlocutors, that was a constant constant question a constant point of conversation is is this something that we won't be able to do ultimately how far will we be able to get Hmm. and one of the one of the things that i was impressed there were a couple of ways that they impressed upon me their interest in doing this which was not just confined to the question of can we put human bodies elsewhere for the people that i worked with and this was Fascinating anthropologically, as an environmental anthropologist, the thing that I study is how is how social groups relate to their surroundings.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: this was a very this was a way a particular way to understand a kind of a of a state sponsored national way of an, of of creating a way to relate the U.S. as a nation to a different kind of environment an, an off world environment. So. One of the ways that my subjects would explain this would be to say to me, well, people forget we're already in space. We live on a planet, the planet is in space. And as such, we are vulnerable. And they would use we in kind of a royal sense to refer to all human beings, even though of course spaceflight is an elite practice that excludes, that's inclusive of certain nations and exclusive of others. But their point was we are in space we are in space. The fact that we can't perceive this, that human beings sort of forget this living in our in our environmental envelope is is of concern in an era in which we can maybe perhaps create a way to go off planet or to mitigate our vulnerability to outer space, to radiation storms, to incoming asteroids that are constantly whizzing by the planet that we do or don't know about. You know, they're they're impetus to do this work was not just to put humans elsewhere, but to also to recognize a better way of living on a planet by engaging the fact that we live in outer space. So I don't know if you follow that logic, but their their scope of imagination was solar systemically scaled. Huh. They, don't, yeah. they, they don't just end their imagination of what the human environment is at the upper atmosphere that you can see in the clouds in the sky when you look up or the stars that you see beyond that envelope, they perceive the human as a solar systemic organism.
1: Wow. You know, at the other extreme of that, um, I was thinking as I read your book about extreme adventurers, people like Dean Potter, you know, who's kind of an elite rock climber, uh, who actually died in a base jump accident a few years ago, Mm But, but other people who are pushing the envelope of the extreme um, really by creating their own extreme <laughs> here on Earth. Yeah. And what's really interesting about the language of a lot of these kind of extreme adventures is this idea of you know, when you free solo a peak or mm-hmm. when you jump off of a bridge span your chances of dying are really high. Right. And so as a result, the impression I get is that they, one of the motives for doing this kind of thing is that it requires and demands a uh, an intense focus on the moment. Yes. It's a kind of way of, um, I guess, keeping the world and its complexities at bay so you can just focus on your foothold. Right. But so... I was just thinking like, in a way, these guys are trying to eliminate the system, aren't they? <laughs> I mean, they're trying to get anyway, I don't know if you had any thoughts about that.
2: Um, that's interesting, you know, yeah, it is there's a very strong attentional component to this. In fact, one of the primary training goals of the astronaut program is to improve what astronauts refer to as their situational awareness, huh. which is also a term that pilots use, and situational awareness, is a demanding practice that requires that the astronaut be able to perceive what's going around on around them in 360 degrees, perceive their vulnerability as living bodies. They oftentimes you know, try to keep, monitor their own vital signs. It's kind of like what people are doing now when they put on a Fitbit, right? So in some ways, what astronautics is, is a precursor to a lot of the things that are going on in high tech on earth today, wearable technologies, Fitbits, ways for people to, as organismal systems, use other technical systems to be aware of their systemic conditions. So what is your heart rate? How many steps have I walked today? That kind of awareness of your relationship to the environment and the way that your body is always in relationship and performing in an environment, these extreme environment practitioners are also doing that kind of thing that it's the being in extremes requires you to pay attention to aspects of your everyday experience that if when you're in a quote unquote normal environment, you don't pay attention to mm-hmm. like how many breaths you're taking, you know, what your heart rate is, any of these kinds of things, you don't typically pay attention to them. So it's a hyper awareness of your surroundings. And I was interested in that extreme idea. It's the motif throughout my book because, it you know, I was interested in the sort of interesting ways in which in the U.S., the extreme, the idea of extremity is such a cool and valorized idea. Yes. On the yeah. one hand, right? On the other hand, political extremism, to refer to someone as an extremist, is also a pejorative label. But I was interested in the whole sort of the whole picture, how the extreme is a kind of cultural motif, provides a way to sort of motivate and pull people into new experiences. I mean, you have extreme flavored tortilla chips, and you also have extreme (laughs) sports, and you have extreme makeovers. And extreme is a kind of marker of moving beyond the norm. So in the US, there's this sort of valorization of on the one hand being normal and being well adapted on the other to going to extremes, right. To being uh, high performance, to improve yourself, to be better than the best, to push yourself to extremes, to go beyond, uh, what is sort of normal in every day. And that's kind of the cultural dimension of astronautics that I found fascinating as well.
1: Yeah. Valerie Olson, thank you so much for talking with me.
2: Thank you very much, Michael. It was great to talk with you today.
1: That's it for today. The music was composed by Zabrat, Make sure you check out the Time to Eat the Dogs website for podcast links and other exploration-related stuff. And if you get the chance, please take a minute to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps make the show visible to new listeners. And if you want to recommend a guest or make a comment, feel free to contact me at time to eat the dogs. that's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. See you next week.